All right, let's open up to Acts 13. It's going to be a very simple study tonight. We studied last week, uh, the, this is their first missionary journey. Paul's traveling with Barnabas. And oh, if you need a Bible, uh, these folks will get you one. Yeah, just raise your hand, they'll get you a Bible. Acts 13. Thanks, Agnes. Keith. Anyone else need a Bible? We're good? Okay. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word, and I thank you, God, on a night where most folks just want to stay home because they've gotten the rest of the week off. We are so grateful to be together and to be encouraged by your word. Lord, we're so thankful for so many things, but so many things we neglect to say thank you for. And Lord, you even marveled at the ingratitude of man when you healed 10 lepers and only one came back to say thank you. But Lord, these men and women tonight, we're here with grateful hearts. And Lord, there's so much to just praise you for. Even the trials we give thanks for. All things we give thanks for. So we love you, God. We ask your blessing on the study of your word. Lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. First missionary journey, Paul is traveling with Barnabas. And uh, I want to take you back to something we already read. It's verses 3 through 5. It says, Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. You see that? So who traveled with them? The only one that's told is John. And what is his job? To assist, doulos, to serve. What does a servant do? Serves. When does a servant speak? When he's spoken to. When does he offer his opinion? When he's asked. He's a servant. He's not in charge. He's an under rower, doulos, bond slave, under rower. Captain wants to go water skiing, row faster. Right? You get that picture? All right, so we studied that last week. We saw them going to Cyprus. Interesting about Cyprus. Uh, who was from Cyprus that's on this missionary journey? No. Everybody has to drop and give me 25 push-ups. <laughs> Barnabas. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Now, with that in mind, I want you to understand who else is from Cyprus. Um, let me see. Oh, Colossians 4.10, I'll read it to you. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, that's John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. So, who else was from Cyprus? The cousin of Barnabas, which would have been John Mark. So the very first missionary journey takes him to the island of Cyprus, familiar territory to Barnabas and familiar territory to John Mark. They go there, they hit it off. They've got family members, they know how to build a church, they've got a consensus, everything's cool. They build this church, they start a missionary journey, everything is running swimmingly. And we saw that they contended with Sergius Paulus, and they went up against Bar-Jesus, and Paul and Barnabas contended with Bar-Jesus, and they won the heart of the proconsul, the governor of the island, and Christianity takes root on the island, and everything is booming on this first missionary journey. And we covered that last week, right? Man, tough crowd tonight, right? 
And we're all tired, so am I. Well, you should have read anyways. No, no, I'm kidding. So now we're going to pick up at verse 13, where we left off last week. Now watch this. Now when Paul, stop for a minute. Do you notice right here that the leadership changes? It was Peter up until then, and then it was the group traveling because they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them. Now, according to verse 13, who's in charge now in the layout? Paul. Now when Paul and whose party? His. Who's the leader? Paul. And who's following him? His party. They set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Right? Actually, he never made Jerusalem. He went straight to Cyprus. We're going to see that in a minute. Now, fascinatingly enough, you ready for this? You know where Pamphylia is? It's awful. And it's a good distance away. It's, on, it's, on the, the, it's in the country of Turkey today. Very mountainous, treacherous climb to get to the city in Pamphylia. And it is going to be tough. No relatives there. No friends there. They don't even know what they're going to find when they get there. And at that moment, John departs from them to go to Jerusalem. We're going to stop there because I want to take a look at who John Mark is. And we're going to go through... Um, this man's life. I want to read to you Psalm 16.6. It says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a godly or goodly heritage. So, John Mark's mother is found in Acts chapter 12. We studied this. When Peter got out of prison, he went to Mary's house. Mary was a, a solid Christian woman, renowned in the city, and that was John Mark's mother. And she was wealthy. She had a large house with a gate. And by the description of it in the Greek, we find it to be a a home of an aristocrat or a wealthy person. And so Mary is is the mother of John Mark. And they were all gathering together to pray. Remember that? They prayed all night. Peter's knocking at the door. She was a prominent woman, a wealthy woman. She was a praying woman. And she was a positive woman. Because the church was in danger and she was still trusting the Lord and putting her house on the line for this early church. So he's got a godly heritage, doesn't he? When I ask the question, just yes or no is really what we're looking for tonight. Everyone born on your birthday, raise your hand. Man. All right, so he's got a godly mother. She is a praying woman, a positive woman, a prominent woman. And he's got an uncle. Let's see about his uncle. Colossians 4.10 points out that, that Barnabas is John Mark's uncle. I just read that to you. And um, so we're going to see a little bit about him. First of all, his name is, he's a great encourager, son of consolation. That's what Barnabas means. He's the one that, that first connected with Paul on the road to Damascus. He's the one who introduced him to the church. He's the one who defended him because Paul was a murderer of Christians. He was a killer of Christians. Barnabas stayed by his side and was with him. And uh, he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. So he was, he was a very religious man, very educated man in the ways of God. He was a, a genuine example. We find in Acts 4.37, he had land, he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he was a generous and kind man, and this is something that he did in relation to encouraging the church. He was a good man, Acts eleven twenty four. The scripture says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
So his uncle is quite a man. We also find out that he's a really gifted expositor of Scripture in Acts 13 uh, because the Lord chose Paul and Barnabas, the two most gifted preachers in the church in Antioch, on their first missionary journey. So, so the Holy Spirit sets these two men aside to go and minister. So his mother's amazing, his uncle's amazing, and he has a great head start. One of the reasons why I know I had a great head start, First Peter 5.13, Peter calls John Mark his son, which the idea in the early church is Peter was the one who led him to Christ. So it's kind of cool when... Barna, or when, when, when Peter is the guy that leads you to the Lord, one of the apostles led John Mark to Jesus. Uh, anyone in here led to Christ by, say, Billy Graham, personally, not in a crusade? Anyone led to the Lord personally by, like, Chuck Smith, by an apostle? So you can see it's pretty significant. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. Just wanted to keep you with me. Um. He was a personal witness of Christ. He was probably one of the 70 disciples that were sent out by Jesus. Uh, He was a privileged worker for Christ. We find that in Acts 13 that we just read, 3 through 5, that the Holy Spirit set them apart and picked John Mark as one of the folks to do it. They fasted, they prayed, they laid hands on him. He was sent forth by the Holy Spirit to Cyprus. And then he had a godly heritage. He had a great head start. And he was going to do great work for the Lord. He was a super saint in a sense. And now we're going to come to a problem. And the problem is what we read this evening. I'm not going to go through the entire... Uh, uh, next, next Wednesday when we gather, I'm going to go through Paul's sermon in Pamphylia. Uh, but I wanted to stop for a minute and take a look at a verse that really affects the body of Christ because it was an early issue and it's something we need to deal with in the body of Christ if we move forward. Um, and what happened in verse 13 is they were going to go to Pamphylia and John Mark basically quits. He quits. He wasn't going to go with him. He came to that decision. He departed from him in Acts 13. Now, take a couple guesses why he quit. Anybody? Scared? Yeah, Pamphylia is treacherous, frightening, unfamiliar. Lost faith. What disagreement would probably be a good one? I'm sorry? Change of leadership. Yeah, Paul's in charge now, not Barnabas, right? And Barnabas was his uncle. That's a really great insight. I'm going to write that down. That'll preach right there. That's a good one. Anyone else? He wanted to pay raise. He wanted to pay raise. Yeah. He didn't want to be a martyr? Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. There's a good chance of that. Any Anyone in the early church was going to be a martyr. You know, uh, you know why he left? I'll tell you why he left. We have no idea. Scripture doesn't tell us. Scripture doesn't tell us the reasons. And all of you came up with a lot of really good reasons. And, but here's, here's what happened. When he left, this is what occurred. The Scripture picks up. Paul preaches this sermon. He does this with, with Barnabas. And they travel to Pamphylia. They do what they're called to do. Paul preaches an amazing sermon. And while he's going through this sermon, the whole sermon... The idea of it is, is he's preaching that it's, it's salvation by grace. He gives the entirety of the gospel. He goes through the history of Israel. We're going to cover that in the week ahead. But, but the point of it is, Paul was preaching not perfection in performance, but he was speaking of perfection in relationship with Christ. It's, it's, it's not doing, it's, it's accepting what Christ has already done. And it was revolutionary in the world. 
And Paul's going to lay this out in Acts 13 in his sermon in Pamphylia. John Mark misses the whole thing, this perfection in relationship. And he breaks relationship. And you think, well, no big deal. He's just scared. He, he wanted to go home. His mom had a really nice house. They were rich. He didn't want to suffer on the mission field. Nobody brought that up, by the way. You know, he, 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 Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The missionary journey looked kind of tough. I've seen a number of people say, yeah, I want to go on that missionary journey to Mexico. I want to go on that missionary journey to Russia. And we get over there, and why do I have to sleep in a tent? And why, why can't I take a shower? And where's the, you know, why, what do you mean there's no flushing toilets? We have to use, you know, outhouses. They're, oh, they stink, and, and, and they don't want to go back the next year, and they're whining to their parents, and on and on and on. I've been through that. And, and I would ask just, and I don't want any raise of hands, but has anyone been on a really tough mission? Anyone suffered for the sake of Christ? And yet God's called us to, 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 to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and this idea. So here's the problem. And turn with me, if you would, tonight to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. You ready? Look at verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, Barnabas determined, by the way, that the word determined in the Greek is bulio, bully. Oh, it means having made a firm decision and being resolved not to change it. Let me repeat that having made a firm decision and being resolved not to change it. So Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted. Now the word insisted defined is demanding something forcefully, not accepting refusal. Okay? Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had what? departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul could not get that out of his mind. This kid is a quitter and he's not part of the team. I'm not bringing him back. Then the contention became so sharp, they parted from one another. The word contention in the Greek means violent reaction, heated disagreement. They were yelling at each other. The great apostle Paul was yelling, you bet he was. And Barnabas, the son of consolation, was, yes, he was. And they were angry, heated contention, violent reaction. I don't know if it went to fisticuffs, but they were livid. You have one who is determined, firm decision, being resolved not to change. Somebody demanding something forcefully, not accepting refusal. Boom, 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 boom. This is the church. This is the first century church. This isn't even the first century church. This is like the first three months church. We have taken this to a whole new level, haven't we? And the division is occurring. And, and so this contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark. And where did they go? Cyprus. What's in Cyprus? My family, my friends, the church that we started. It's comfortable. I know the people there. We have a work there. They have a giving base. I can take a salary. 
I'm just throwing that out there. Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So who did the church sponsor and who did the church recognize? Paul and Silas, and who didn't they recognize? Barnabas and John Mark, right? And Barnabas and John Mark, do they go on to new missionary journeys? No, they go back to an old one. Now, Paul wanted to go and visit all those churches, and so in a sense, Barnabas does that, but he goes to the very first church they started, and these guys go on to Pamphylia and all the other places that they went. And they were, that was tough ground. And so they travel, and at this point, we see all kinds of failure. Uh, I want to read to you Galatians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Uh, this is 11 through 13. Paul writing, he says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separate himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, the legalists. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Barnabas struggled. Paul had to, Paul had to correct him. Barnabas kind of went off errant. He, he struggled in his, in his walk with the Lord. He struggled in his ministry. And, and this became a major issue in their service. Now, one of the things that I've, I've, I've considered, and I've taught this passage before, but my heart's changing a little bit in relation to it, especially as I've spent time in the ministry and, and I've looked at these things. Before I share with you my, my thoughts on it, I want to read you a couple more verses. Um, no, I'm going to save those. Those are, those are verses concerning John Mark. I want to talk about who was right and who was wrong. You know, I, I had, um, I, had, I want to share with you three illustrations, personal illustrations, of where I believe I was a John Mark in somebody's life. Um, I don't know that I've ever played the role of Barnabas, but I have played the role of John Mark. I've quit um, and I've failed. And, um, you know, just, just considering these things in life, it becomes somewhat difficult. I remember Michelle and I were serving in Fresno, California, and um, a minister came, and I prayed for a Bible teaching minister because we had served under, what, three ministers prior to that? Three, four? Yeah, quite a few. And this one, and, and they didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. It was an Armenian church, and I served under pastors that were real liberal in their theology, but I, was, I had the freedom to teach the kids the, the, to, the full gospel, the the entirety of the gospel, the whole counsel of God. And they didn't stop me from doing it. So we considered ourselves missionaries. There were some really godly people in this church. It was a congregational form of government. So there was a pocket of really solid believers, but the majority of the church were there because it was ethnic and their parents had built the church and they stayed forever. And, and uh, this, this pastor comes, he's half Armenian. He was a teacher of Old Testament theology at Azusa Pacific, and he had been selected teacher of the year, year after year at Azusa Pacific University. Every student loved him. One of the toughest teachers in the school, but his life and times of Jesus was one of the most amazing classes and still is spoken of by every student that's gone through that program. Everyone knows him. His name is Dr. Bruce Beloyan. And Dr. Beloyan came to our church, and I was thrilled about studying under this man. And he was, he was one of the hardest people I've ever worked for. 
one of the, the most difficult I'd ever worked for. He would make me do my sermons and do an outline. I'd never done an outline before. Uh, I was still just getting ready to attend seminary. And I hadn't really, I didn't know how to do an outline. I was just taking Chuck Smith books and reading them and teaching them because that's the Calvary way. And, and I just kind of learned that from somebody else. And I really didn't know a lot about Calvary chapels in a great extent. I mean, I knew about them, but I didn't know their teaching and I hadn't trained in a Calvary chapel. I just studied under some. And I listened to him on the radio. So I'm teaching that style. He'd say, no, no, you, you, you're going to do an outline. And and I'd, I'd do an outline on my message, and I'd bring it to him, and he says, on an outline, you can't have a, an A without a B. And he'd give it back to me. Without even looking, just give it back to me. Go do it again. And I'd go back, and I'd, I'd, I'd get point one, point a, sub point A, sub point B, and, you know, sub point, you know, one, or, you know, small A, small B. And I'd bring it back to him, and he'd, he'd just butcher it. He'd red pen, and he'd throw it back at me four or five times just to prepare for a Sunday. And it was to the point where I didn't want to do it anymore. And, and I, was, I was tough to, to teach. I was difficult. And he was tough to study under. He was difficult. And, and he was determined to teach me, and I insisted on not learning. And, uh, and, and finally, you know, tensions arose, and, and he was struggling with the church. I had already survived three senior pastors. By golly, this guy wasn't going to get the best of me. And I'd served three pastors that didn't even believe in the, in, in the inerrancy of the scriptures, with one exception. And, and I, I had gone through this congregational church, and I wasn't even an Armenian, and I'd survived longer than he had. And I'm like, bring it on, you know? And, and I started to get bitterness in my heart, and I was struggling over his leadership and the direction he was taking the church, and I'd see the way he'd treat me. And I remember one night in particular, he wanted me to help him with a college group. So uh, he was running the college group, and he insisted on teaching it, and I had started it, and I'm like, all right, you know, teach the college group. You know, I had surrendered it to him. But he said, I want you to set up the chairs, and I want you to stay through the service. And he wanted me to learn from him on how to teach. And so I'd go, and I'd set up the chairs, and I'd sit there, and, and it was just... It was long, and, and I had no point to participate. I had a lot of things to do. I was his only assistant. And, and one night, there were missionaries that were in from Lebanon that we had known before. He's an assistant pastor of church. He and his wife had a night to spend with us, and that was the only night. And so they had told me earlier that day, I sent Dr. Beloyan a text. I'd sent him a voicemail, and I said, I'm going to come set up the chairs. I'll be there for a little bit, but I have to step out because we're going to go uh, sit with the missionaries from Lebanon, the old assistant pastor. And I did my task, I laid it out, and I stepped out of the college group, and I went back. We lived in the parsonage on the property, and I went back. We were having dinner with this couple. It was a lovely evening. And just as we were getting to the dessert, and it was just real nice and so enjoyable, there's a knock on the door. Michelle answers it, and she says, Rob, Dr. Beloyan's outside. He wants to talk to you. Oh, okay. And I, I tell them, excuse me, and I walk outside, and he says, come on out here. And I walk out, and he goes, no, further. I walk out a little bit further, and he goes, further. Further. And I walk out further. He takes his finger and he says, you will never, never be a minister. You are pathetic. You are worthless. And he just starts going, you don't love people. You don't love the word of God. And he's just pointing and he's cussing and he's yelling at me. And I'm sitting there just stunned. You've abandoned your post. You're pathetic. And he's just yelling at me. And then he says, and to show you that you're, you, don't even, you, you don't even understand, you don't even understand authority. Don't you dare go back there and, and whine about what occurred here. Basically, I just beat you up. Don't tell anyone. And I'm like, okay. 
And I see his wife in the car, and she's, she's down like this, just, you know, her head's down. And I walk inside, and I sit down, and Michelle, you know, she, she can read me from a mile away. She sees there's something, and I'm trying to pretend like there's no problem. And, and it was that point where I just said, I'm leaving. I am not doing this anymore. And we prepared to leave, and we left quietly. We didn't divide the church. We didn't do anything. We just left. I moved in with my in-laws. And that was hard. That was a John Mark. I quit. Some of you are going, why'd you quit? The man was abusive. And yeah, he was. But you know what I learned? We give thanks in all things. You know what I learned from Dr. Bruce Beloyan? I learned how to exegete a text. I learned how to see things. Dr. Bruce Beloyan had the most amazing gift. If, if I were to, to ask you to observe this water bottle, and I want you to tell me 10 things about it. All of you go, well, it has a label, and it's eight ounces, and it has a cap on it, and it's clear. You're going to all list things you can see. And I would imagine of the 10 things you come up with, eight of the 10 would be what everyone else has. Dr. Beloyan would say, well, I want to know why it's designed this way. So he'd go back to the manufacturer. Well, it's for stacking purposes so that you can get a lot on top of it. And the design came from, and he would go all the way into the research of it. So that when you'd look at a water bottle, it wouldn't be just looking at a water bottle. It would be the most amazing observation you've ever experienced. And that was his gifting. And he showed me a way to see things in, in, a, in a sense that no one else saw. And I was blessed by that. I didn't, learn, I didn't realize that until later when I started to do my studies. And of course, we reconciled years later. He called and he apologized for his anger. He says, you know, I was just processing. I was in stress. It's not to justify why I did what I did. He just, I'm, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I forgave you a long time ago, and I just want to say thank you for what you poured into my life. I'm sorry I wasn't a better student. I didn't know how to do an outline, and, and I was obstinate at times because I was. And, and we reconciled. And if I called him today and said, Dr. Beloyan, are you free? Can you come and take the pulpit? He would. I know he would. He's done events for us in the past. And he's an amazing teacher. And he's gifted. He's an author. He's a good guy. But that was my experience as a John Mark. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to belabor you with other stories. But that's a picture. God's going to put a Saul in your life to refine you and prepare you. And actually, David learned, you know what Saul was gifted at? Managing a kingdom. That guy was like a McClellan, McClellan, General McClellan. He understood supply, and, and he knew how to prepare the troops. He didn't know how to fight, but he knew how to prepare the, the, the Union Army. And, and it wasn't, you know, Grant didn't know how to prepare the Union Army, but McClellan did. He set up the supply line so that when Grant took over the army, he was successful. Grant was an alcoholic. He was a chain smoker. He was a mess. But he knew how to fight. He was fearless. McClellan knew how to supply. Everyone who's in your life is there for a reason to teach you something. And they may be an anvil to sharpen you and prepare you. Well, in this case, God had brought Paul into John Mark's life to be an anvil. But John Mark quit. And Barnabas stayed with Paul. But now we get to chapter 15, and Barnabas is saying, I want to bring him back in. And Paul's saying, no. And, and, and Barnabas says, I'm not going any further unless he comes. Paul says, then you can just stay right here with him. He's not coming. I am determined, and I, 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 I will not bend on this. Well, I'm insisting, and I'm not bending either. And I imagine, imagine Paul threw down the authority deal. I'm in charge here. 
And if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Ever had a boss like that? Some of the people who work here going, yes. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And people are saying, well, you don't understand, John Mark. You don't understand all this capability. You don't understand all this. Doesn't matter. You don't abandon your post. This is war. Everywhere we're going, I'm either kicked through the streets like a soccer ball and I spend the night in a prison. It's hell out there. And the last thing I want on a journey like that is some milk toast, silver spooned eating loser. I don't want him on the trip. I can't afford the dissension. I can't afford it. Let me tell you, John Mark, his failure seems innocent enough. He just wanted to go home. But you know what it did? It created division in the church. And the division didn't so much come from John Mark's failure. It came from Barnabas. I think the loser in all this is Barnabas. Barnabas struggles with the inerrancy of the word. He struggles with hypocrisy. He goes through this. Paul commends him later, but they, they, don't, they don't cross paths. They don't touch each other's lives again. John Mark comes back into Paul's life, but not Barnabas. And, and the problem, John Mark is restored. I got restored. But you know what happened? A lot of kids in that youth ministry struggled. You see, when one is determined and the other is insisting, you know who gets affected? The body, the sheep. And the one who screwed that up, in my estimation, is Barnabas. I used to think that both were right and both were wrong. I don't feel that way, I don't think, anymore. A violent reaction to contend with somebody who God had appointed and set aside to lead the work? Has anyone ever had a spouse that wasn't perfect? Your ex-wife. Yeah. She's saying her ex-husband. Anyone ever had a parent who wasn't perfect? Hello? Anyone ever had a boss who wasn't perfect? Does it change the authority? If you quit, you don't get a paycheck. If you leave the house, you got to pay rent. You don't reconcile with your spouse. Yes? And we know God appoints all positions of authority, but not unto abuse. You know, some of you say, well, that was verbally abusive what that pastor did to you. Yeah, it was. It was. I've had coaches that give me worse. And I, you know, I, I think we're so quick to find offense. I've been abused. Well, you know what abuse is? Abuse is the inability to find strength in the midst of the trial and to see God in the equation. And, and, and when you get to a place where the abuse is so heavy that it isn't godly and there's no way out, you gotta go. Bible says it's better to live on the corner of a rooftop than in a home with a contentious spouse. And then he, Solomon goes on to say, it's better to live in the wilderness. Just, I mean, don't even be anywhere near him. But it says you're still calling him spouse, right? Wife. That's what the scripture speaks in that regard. And, and, and you have this responsibility to stay in. But you, you go to your corner and you work it out. But we are so gifted at quitting and we're so gifted at dividing. We immediately draw the line in the sand and we say, it's time to fight. And, um, and that's where the problem comes. Because 
God appoints all positions of authority. And it's not to say who is that to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. It's not like you have authority and you can be abusive with it. And you can quote those scriptures and say, well, they laid hands on Paul and Silas, but they didn't lay hands on Barnabas and John Mark. And Paul had the authority because it was his team and he was the leader. And the scripture is very clear on that. That's true. That's true. Does it it give Paul the right to be mean and abusive? But has there ever been anyone in the room who hasn't been mean or abusive? And if you are one of those, could you raise your hand? Because we want to learn from you. The Bible says endeavor to keep the union of the Spirit and the bond of peace, work it out. One of the things that Barnabas needed to do was was to recognize the authority and submit to it, but also kindly express his, his concerns and come to a place and I don't know that Barnabas did that because the church sided with him. Some of you would say, well, the church didn't know and the church was just, it had the authority. It did that. And, and the way it was laid out is in the, in the, in the Greek, it's, it's defining it as the entirety of the church supported Paul and Silas. You guys ever heard of a man by the name of Charles Templeton? I didn't think so. Has anyone ever heard heard of a man named Billy Graham? Did you know that Charles Templeton was a bigger evangelist than Billy Graham? And, and he, was, he was on a trajectory that to do far greater than Billy Graham. I want to read to you a story about him. As many of you know, Billy Graham, Charles Templeton were evangelists who rose to fame in the 40s. Graham, of course, is still an evangelist. And early in their careers, they were friends, close friends. Many have said that Templeton was the one that everyone thought was going to overturn the world with the gospel. However, Templeton ended up leaving the Christian faith, eventually becoming an atheist. In 1982, though still an atheist, he said of Billy Graham, there's no feigning in him. He believes what he believes with an invincible innocence. He's the only mass evangelist I would trust. Templeton died in 2001 at the age of 86, and shortly after he wrote what this author considers to be one of the most heartbreaking books ever published. It was called Farewell to God. Templeton fell into the uh, um, higher criticism, which is the German theologians we talked about on Sunday, where he questioned the authenticity and the inerrancy of God's word. And he, and he just had a problem with it. And in his book, he gives a conversation between uh, he and Billy Graham. He says, all our differences came to a head in a discussion, which better than anything I know explains Billy Graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. In the course of our conversation, I said, but Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe. For instance, the biblical account of creation, the world was not created over a period of days, a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said, and there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, I said, men in conservative Christian colleges? Most of them, yes, he said. But that's not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say God says or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of the theological dispute. So I've decided once for all to stop questioning and accepting the Bible as God's word. But Billy, I protested, you cannot do that. 
You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anyone else, he said, but I've decided that that's the path for me. Templeton died in obscurity as an atheist. Billy Graham has touched more lives than can possibly be imagined. The word of God has power. And, and for Billy to take it at, at face value is what transformed the ministry. And have you ever seen when he, he would speak? Look at some of his old sermons. The Bible says, God's word says, and the minute those words leave his mouth, the whole room is captivated. And these two men parted ways, and, and it, was a, it was a theological issue for, for, uh, for Barnabas in a lot of ways because he struggled with the authority that Paul had. I, I came to a conclusion, we're almost finished, but I came to a conclusion in my thoughts. I used to think both were right and both were wrong. But I'm really struggling with Barnabas right now. And I came aclo- across a, a commentary, and, and we have it up on our, our shelf there, and it's, it's an ancient commentary. And, and if you use the commentary, be very, very careful with it. These books are over 100 years old. It's Alexander McLaren's commentary. And this is what he writes He says, Christian men and women are idle in this world because so often in the past, tasks have been presented to you, forced upon you, almost pressed into your unwilling hands that you've refused to take and you're not going to get any more. You've been asked to work. I speak now to professing Christians. Duties have been pressed upon you. Fields of service have been plainly opened plainly before you and you have not had the heart to go into them. And so you stand idle all the day now and the work goes to the other people that will do it. And thus God honors them and passes by you. Mark sails away to Cyprus. He does not go back to Jerusalem. He and Barnabas try to get up some little schismatic sort of mission of their own. Nothing comes of it. Nothing ought to have come of it. He drops out of the story. He has no share in the joyful conflicts and sacrifices and successes of the apostle. When he heard how Paul, by God's help, was flaming like a meteor, from east to west, do you not think he wished that he had not been such a coward? When the Lord was opening doors and he saw how the work was prospering in the hands of ancient companions and Silas filled the place that he might, have been, he might too have been filled if he had been faithful to God. Do you not think the bitter thought occupied his mind of how he had flung away what never could have come back to him now? The punishment of avoidance or laziness is absolute idleness. Let me say that again. The punishment of laziness is idleness. How long do you have to sit in a church before you do something? Right? And it's not like there isn't enough to do. We've just said no to it. Because we've got other things that we want that are more comfortable, like Cyprus. And, and, And... God has bigger things in store. He wants to stretch us and challenge us. Pamphylia may have steep cliffs. but God's got wonderful lessons in store for you. So he's almost finished. He says, so my friends, let us learn this lesson that the largest reward that God can give to him that has been faithful in a few things is to give him many things to be faithful over. And that's from Matthew 25, verses 14 to 23 with the parable of the talents. Beware all of you professing Christians, lest you should come lest to you should come the fate of the slothful servant with his one burled talent 
to whom the punishment of bearing it unused was to lose it altogether, or to lose it altogether. According to that solemn word which was fulfilled in the temporal sphere in the story on which I am commenting, to him that hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that shall be taken away. It's not the lesson out of that, this eternal gospel. is not the lesson out of that, this eternal gospel, that even early failures recognized and repented of may make a man better fitted for the task from which once he fled. Just as they tell us, I do not know whether it is true or not, it will do for an illustration, just as they tell us that a broken bone renewed is stronger at the point of fracture than it ever was before. So the very sin that we commit when once we know it for a sin and have brought it to Christ for forgiveness may minister to our future efficiency and strength. Sin, which we have learned to know for sin and to hate, teaches us humility, dependence, honoring authority, shows us where our weak places are. Sin, which is forgiven, knits us to Christ and to each other with deeper and more fervid love and results in a larger consecration. I share all that because when you look at the scriptures and you see what occurred in the passages, what's fascinating to me is you never hear from Barnabas. The guy who divided, he was determined, unbending, unwavering. He went back to his hometown because he had an easy church there. I have to tell you, the biggest struggle I have as a pastor is picking, and, and this is why the Bible says don't be quick to lay hands on somebody. You invest in somebody's life and you pour into them. And then they go do their Cypress thing. They take everything you give them and they go do their own deal. And what they lose is this idea of honoring authority. See, let me tell you why. The way you honor authority is the way you'll be honored. Because you're going to know how to pick the people who know how to submit because you've been there. I didn't learn that until I served under Don McClure. And you know the only way I could learn that with Don McClure is because, uh, because I survived Bruce Beloyan. I didn't divide the church. I quietly left. And then a ministry opened up for us in, in San Jose under Don McClure. They said that that was the meat grinder, Calvary Chapel, San Jose. It was a church that was millions of dollars in debt. They'd taken over a failed um, Assemblies of God church that was about to be in the front page of the newspapers for um, uh, stealing funds from a, a financial scheme and the pastor was going to go to jail. Calvary Chapel came in, secured all the finances, paid back the elderly that were in rest homes that the church had stolen and, and kept them out of the news. And the pastor tried to get the church back after all the debt was paid and Don stood his ground. The elders tried to rebel against him. And Don turned this battleship around. And I remember working there. It was a, an 11-acre church facility that was in disarray. They had stolen everything before they left the church. We had to repair over, over 90 toilets. They had stolen toilet seats when they, when they turned the church over to us. We had to replace everything. 
And, and, and we were trying to keep this church afloat and it had gone from a sanctuary of 3,000 to less than 400 people. And, and, and Don mortgaged his house. He put everything into it. He climbed all the way to the top of Pamphylia. No other pastor in the Calvary movement wanted anything to do with it. As a matter of fact, John Corson, who was the most beloved you know, Bible expositor in the Calvary movement in that time, uh, was saved in that church early on. And Chuck went to him and said, hey, I got an opportunity for you in San Jose. We don't have any Calvary chapels in that area. This church is looking for a Calvary pastor. And, and uh, Don was looking for a challenge because he'd already planted the church in Redlands. He planted the church um, up in the mountain. He planted, I think, four different churches and he was looking for a challenge. He wanted to, he was like a, he was like a Paul. I mean, what's next? Let's go. You know, time's wasting. We got churches to plant. And, and John Corson had this massive Christian Applegate in, in, in Oregon, and people were driving from all over, and it was just the coolest amphitheater, and they had the school, and it was epic. Everybody was buying his commentaries. Everybody was teaching his mystical teachings. It was great. And Chuck called him and said, why don't you consider it? And he said, I don't know, Chuck. He said, I'll, I'll go check it out. He walks through, and I mean, the place was in disarray. The weeds were up. The, the carpet was stained. It was bad. Had this, it looked like a... It looked like a brothel. Everything was red, red curtains. It was awful. And, and uh, so John Corson walks through it, and he said, he called Chuck, and he goes, I got one word for you, Chuck, in relation to that. And Chuck goes, what is it? He goes, Ichabod, the glory's departed. Basically, I don't want it. And, and when Don had called and asked Chuck for a challenge, Chuck said, you know, there's a church. I mean, John wants to look at it. He goes, hey, Chuck, don't tell John I'm thinking about it. If he turns it down, I'll take it. So John Corson says, Ichabod. Chuck calls him and says, I don't know if you want this. John just called it Ichabod. He goes, I'd love to have it. It's $6 million in debt. It's, it's facing, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't know if you should do it. He says, no, I want it. And Don took it. Don took it. And when I arrived there, Don had already gone through probably seven or eight assistant pastors. Because they get there, oh, praise the Lord, I'm fresh out of Bible college, I want to serve Jesus, I'll clean toilets, I'll do whatever. I've heard that so many times from Bible graduates, I almost want to throw up. I'll clean toilets, I'll do whatever. And you give them a task, they're like, I ain't doing this. You know, a week and a half into it, they're ready to quit. And, and the facilities where you had to live, windowless apartments that were filled with roaches, it was nasty. You know, the people upstairs that were living above me and Michelle would do their dishes and the noodles would end up in our laundry, in our, on our washing machines. I, I'm dead serious. It was awful, awful. And, and we're enduring this and people would come and they go, praise the Lord, I'm a servant of the most high God, I'm ready to serve you. And they get there and, and they were thinking that ministry was having a fireside chat with Don and he was gonna pour in all these deep truths and we were gonna go through a little kumbaya Bible study. Don didn't even talk to you. He was busy going from here to here and if you had time to talk, you weren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. You got toilets to fix. You got doors to fix. You got weeds to pull. Why are you talking to me? We're at war. And everyone's disillusioned, like, well, this isn't what I expected ministry to be. And you're running all over the place, and it's crazy. And, and I remember Don just being mean. And he didn't even know he was mean. He was just focused. And I remember one day watching him pull up into the vacant lot that no cars were parking in. The thing was just riddled. The trees were all brown. He opens up the trunk of his car. He pulls out a chainsaw, roll, 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 just dropping down, puts a chainsaw, and goes to his next appointment. And then he comes in, he goes, I just checked down. You guys move all that stuff. We're like, okay, we're moving it. Next day, do this. Okay, we'll go do that. It was crazy. We'd, we'd sleep five hours a night, maybe, if we were lucky, 
to go on to do tapes for the radio broadcast, keeping this thing afloat. It was awful. I watched people quit left and right. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I grew. I edited all of his tapes. I got a systematic theology at 3 o'clock in the morning going through all of Don's tapes. I learned from him. And I learned how to serve Don because I had been trained under Dr. Bruce Beloyan. Every person is an anvil and shapes you and equips you. And John Mark learned that lesson. Barnabas didn't. Barnabas fell into obscurity. But I close with this in the last four minutes. Paul is writing this letter. It's the last letter he ever wrote. He'd be beheaded. And he's concluding his letter to Timothy. He's cold. He's in prison. He says in the letter, only Luke is with me. He's a faithful companion, never left his side. Luke was his physician. He says, but please, Timothy, get John Mark and bring him with you. He is dear to me in the ministry. He would write Philemon, it says, uh, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. He loved John Mark. He saw that kid improve. Barnabas and Paul never did anything together after that. That was almost like Billy Graham's friend. But here's the most fascinating thing. Name the Gospels. The Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. I'd say he was pretty effective in the ministry, wouldn't you? Don't quit. Don't quit. But more importantly, don't coddle somebody. And don't divide the body. Barnabas doesn't have my favor in this one. There's a lot to commend him for. I'd like to be half the man as him in regards to his heart and his kindness. But he almost did John Mark a disservice.